Uh, my name's Mary Caldor, and I direct something called the Human Civil Society and Human Security Research Unit. And one of our interests, as a group that's interested in civil society, has been in Burma. And we had the great privilege earlier this year uh, to host a, a video link with Aung San Suu Kyi through Al Jazeera, which was extremely exciting. Um, but now these things are becoming much more common. Actually, she got cut off halfway through, and it had to be through mobile. Uh, but it was still very exciting. And obviously, changes are happening in Burma as we speak, which are also very exciting. So it's a great opportunity to continue some of the discussions we've had in the past by having Peter Popham, who's been a journalist traveling in Burma for many years and who's written a biography of Aung San Suu Kyi called The Lady and the Peacock, which sounds like a wonderful title. Um, and he's going to tell us a bit about his book. Good evening. Thanks very much for inviting me to speak here. Um, the, as um, Mary mentioned, this is uh, an extraordinary moment for Burma. Um, you wouldn't know it to go by the incredibly parochial coverage on our televisions and radios, but this week uh, um, has seen the first visit to the country of an American Secretary of State for more than 50 years, in other words, since the military coup d'etat of 1962. She visited the regime in Naypyidaw, the new capital of Burma, and she rounds off the trip today and tomorrow with talks with Aung San Suu Kyi, the subject of my biography. Uh, and it's an indication of the continuing centrality of Sue to the West's relations with Burma that despite her many years of imprisonment and marginalization, it's almost inconceivable that Hillary Clinton would wrap up her Burma visit any other way. One year ago, Sue had just been released from seven and a half years of detention and nobody knew what to expect. Would she quickly be put under house arrest again, for example? Could there be another attempt on her life? Now, after three months of, by Burmese standards, hectic reform, her party, the National League for Democracy, is once again officially recognized. Her words and representations of her face are visible on the streets of Rangoon for the first time since 1989 and she is also on the verge of running for election. What has she surrendered in exchange? So far, nothing. Sanctions remain firmly in place, and she has given no suggestion that they should be lifted. Mind you, the, the junta also have not surrendered anything, or at least anything of substance. Vicious border wars continue, forcing yet more thousands of Karen villagers into exile. The privileges of the generals and their cronies remain untouched. Before she went to Burma, Hillary Clinton said that those responsible for political crimes in Burma should be held accountable, but nobody is on their way to The Hague anytime soon. Nonetheless, more than at any time in the past 23 years, it is possible to see some vindication in Sue's uniquely strange and difficult political career some possibility of her bringing real hope and real improvement 
to the lives of her fellow Burmese who have been under the boot of the army for so many years. This therefore seems an excellent moment a few days before the 20th anniversary of her receiving the Nobel Peace Prize to ask some hard questions about the character, talents and ambitions of the 66-year-old woman who once again is at the heart of the Burmese conundrum and who, according to a perhaps over, overexcited headline in my newspaper, The Independent, a few weeks ago, might soon be Burma's president. Has Burma's Nelson Mandela finally found her Willie de Klerk? If so, is she equipped to cope with the consequences? When Aung San Suu Kyi made her first speech before a huge crowd in Rangoon on the 26th of August 1988, she was an enigma, an unknown. Just another general's daughter, as Nita Yinian May, then information officer at the British Embassy, put it. In the course of that speech, woodenly delivered but explosive in content, she metamorphosed into her nation's hope. Nita continued, she started talking to the people and I was overwhelmed by her speech. This was the one we were looking for. She was the true leader. Another person in the audience that day, a woman called Ma Tengi, an aristocratic painter and a former diplomat's wife, who was to become, become Sue's close companion and whose previously unseen diaries I was able to use in my book, was more cynical. She was in the crowd too, but she said, due to a bad sound system, we could hear nothing. But even if they could not hear, people instantly took her into their hearts without question. She was fair-skinned, she was beautiful, she was articulate, and her eyes flashed as she spoke. We were glad to have a symbol, a leading light, a presence bringing hopes and dreams that her father, Aung San, did not have the chance to fulfill. Hundreds of miles away from Rangoon, a student from the Padang ethnic minority, famous for their giraffe-necked women, also fell under Su's spell. Dis distance and ethnic difference did not seem to make any difference. She instantly became our leader and inspiration, he later wrote. In the evenings, we would listen to the BBC and hope for guidance from our goddess. Once Sue had overcome the nerves she betrayed in that first speech, she had a straightforwardness and familiarity in her addresses to the vast crowds who came out to meet her, which people found captivating. A veteran Swedish Burma watcher called Bertil Lindner described to me one of those early meetings. She was coming to open a new NLD office in a suburb on the outskirts of Rangoon, he told me. It was scorching hot, April, before the rains. I went out there in a taxi and thousands of people were waiting in this scorching sun for hours. Children, old women, people of all ages. Suddenly, you could see a white car somewhere in the distance trailing a cloud of dust behind it. Then the car arrived and the cheers were incredible and she got out very relaxed surrounded by her students her bodyguards and smiled at everybody and was garlanded and she went up on stage and started talking 
And she talked for two or three hours and nobody left. Not even the children left. My Burmese is fairly rudimentary, but I could understand what she was talking about. She was using very simple, down-to-earth words. You've got a head, she said, and you haven't got a head to nod with. You've been nodding for 26 years. The head is there for you to think, this kind of thing. And people were laughing. It was a family affair. A few weeks after the meeting which Bertil described, Sue survived an army major's attempt to shoot her down. And those early views of her as a goddess, a saviour, a bodhisattva, a merciful Buddha, seemed to many to have been confirmed. She was put in detention for the first time, but her cult only grew. In May of 1990, when she was still in detention, the NLD won a landslide victory in the general elections, but the regime, the regime refused to honour the result, and she stayed locked up for another five years. <coughs> As anyone who has visited Burma can confirm, the country is jam-packed full of Buddha images of every size, and a couple of months after the regime's failure to hand over power, the rumour began to spread that the left breasts of certain Buddha images had begun swelling and weeping. The weeping of the left breast was widely interpreted as a good omen for Sue, symbolising a mother's nurture and indicating that her power would grow and that she would succeed in saving Burma from suffering. But if many Burmese had an almost mystical view of Sue from early on, the situation was not that much different in the West. Once she had been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1991, and given the fact that for the following four years she was completely inaccessible, she entered the realm of legend. She was either a wondrous being, a sort of political saint, or for the skeptics she was just too good to be true. But in either case, there was very little for us to go on, just this slim, sylph-like oriental beauty who had put up with so much and whose family had put up with so much as well. Um, I should mention that, in fact, this is changing now and that uh, there are two different films coming out which will give us a much deeper picture uh, of Sue's private life and the relations that were going on during those years under house arrest, in addition to my biography. Um, and one of them is actually going to be shown in London uh, in the coming days. You'll find flyers on the way out. It's called Aung San Suu Kyi, Lady of No Fear. It's an excellent documentary um, which uh, features interviews with her and also with many of her friends and relatives. The other one uh, is a new film called The Lady by the French director Luc Besson, which will be released at the end of December. Uh, I saw a preview of it earlier this week, and um, I think that's good as well. Um, it got horribly panned in The Guardian um, some months back, and I think most unfairly, because it's, um, it's a, a bold attempt to do justice to the political story as well as the human one. So, to go back to the uh, image that we have of Sue, over the more than 15 years in which she was completely out of sight, this two-dimensional image has become practically all we know of her. 
She's become a sort of cipher of piety and righteousness and self-sacrifice. She's immensely famous, but we hardly know her at all. In her lifetime, she is suffering the sort of reification that normally afflicts the saintly, but only long after their death. The flattening and simplifying of her image for the purposes of propaganda, either in posters and t-shirts for the Burma democracy movement, or as used rather disturbingly, in my view, to sell table lamps or cars, has the same effect. It was partly to try to correct this flatness, this lack of depth, to try to bring some body and complexity into our understanding of her that I undertook to write this biography. And when I started meeting her friends and her English relations, I quickly learned that the saintly stereotypes, while not totally wrong, told only one side of the story. What emerged from my research was a far more complex figure. On the one hand, she was indeed very consciously moral, with high moral standards inculcated by her mother, which were thrown into, into relief by the decadence she discovered in Britain in 1964, when she arrived to study politics, philosophy and economics at St. Hugh's College, Oxford. Anne Pasternak Slater, the, great, the granddaughter of Boris Pasternak, became one of her best friends at Oxford, and she captures the as that aspect of her very well. The college, Anne wrote, was, I quote, a warren of nervous adolescent virgins and a few sexually liberated sophisticates, with an atmosphere airless and prickly as a hot railway compartment. In this setting, she went on, Sue was delightfully antithetical, an original who was at once laughably naive and genuinely innocent. All my memories of her at that time have certain recurring elements. Cleanliness, determination, curiosity, a fierce purity. How do I see her? Eyebrows furrowed under a heavy fringe, shocked incredulity and disapproval. But Anne! Everyone was on the hunt for boyfriends, I'm still quoting. Many wanted affairs, sex being still a half-forbidden, half-won desideratum. Being laid back about being laid was de rigueur. It was extremely difficult to preserve any kind of innocence in such a setting. To most of our English contemporaries, Sue's startled approval seemed a comic aberration. One bold girl asked her, but don't you want to sleep with someone? Back came the indignant reply, no, I'll never go to bed with anyone except my husband. Now I just go to bed hugging my pillow. It raised a storm of mostly derisive laughter. But Sue was neither as square nor as sexless as that nun-like characterization suggests. She was theatrical and creative, one of her best friends in Delhi remembered that her driving ambition at school was to write, and she was precociously successful, or at least productive. She wrote a comic spoof of Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra, which she and her Indian college friends produced at college in Delhi. As a teenager in Delhi, where her mother was the Burmese ambassador, she was undoubtedly under her mother's thumb. 
Dorkinji, the, the mother, made her and her brother walk round and round the garden to practice keeping their backs straight. And she insisted that Sue kept busy all the time with one of her ladylike accomplishments, piano, sewing, embroidery, flower arranging, and equitation. And her severity terrorized Sue's friends. But once she was at Oxford, she rapidly became her own woman. She gave up the childish ponytail and began to sport the floppy fringe she has worn ever since. She bought a molten bicycle, then the trendiest mode of transport. And as it was not practicable to ride it wearing her lungi, the Burmese sarong, she took to wearing tight white jeans. When she went home to Rangoon for a visit, her friends realized that, quote, the ugly duckling had turned into a swan, as one of them put it to me. As one of Burma's most marriageable women, beautiful and with a famous name, if not at all rich, there was expectation on these return visits that a suitable young Burmese man would be found for her. We know of a couple of these attempted matchmakings which came to nothing. Sue was turning out to be her own person and not only in the matter of her looks. She fell in love for the first time at Oxford with a Pakistani student called Tariq Haider, who went on to become a senior Pakistani diplomat, recently retired. Some of Sue's Indian friends, whom she had known since Delhi, disliked him. Whether or not he was, as one of them put it, a sleazeball, there is no doubt that it would have been a very challenging match in both Burma and Pakistan. In the end, the romance fizzled out, but the relationship, or at least her hopes for it, outlasted her university career. Mr. Haider, who in his retirement is a frequent commentator in the Pakistani press, refused to talk to me for the book. It's hard to see how the relationship would have flourished given the cultural and religious differences of their respective countries. But then Sue was a young woman in love with all the tenderness and optimism of youth. What's interesting to me about this episode is the proof it gives of her willpower and independence of mind. Holding out for Mr. Hyder alienated her Indian friends at Oxford and would have infuriated her mother, but Sue went her own way. The man, the man she eventually did marry, the English scholar of Tibet, Michael Aris, was barely more satisfactory from her mother's point of view. In a letter that Sue wrote to Michael's twin brother Anthony before the marriage, she mentions her family's failure to give their blessing to it, but gives every indication of not minding much. Quote, I'm sure my brother and my mother and my brother will get over their initial disappointment at what they probably consider my usual waywardness, she wrote. That phrase, when I came across it, gave me pause, my usual waywardness. Waywardness is not a word that we usually associate with her. And yet if we consider her record at Oxford and beyond, we can see why it could be applicable and why she applied it sardonically to herself. While she was at Oxford, she twice tried, tried to change her degree course in midstream, once to English and once, curiously, to forestry. Both times, the university refused to let her do so. She graduated with a miserable third, not because she was not intelligent, but because, 
As was clear from her requests to change subject, the course did not really interest her. Economics, I believe, was a particular problem. Then, instead of returning home and settling down with a suitable Burmese boy, she flew off in the opposite direction to shack up in Manhattan with Dora Van Eh, an older woman who had been a famous singer in Burma before the war and who now worked for the UN in New York. Sue enrolled in a course in international affairs at New York University, but then, wayward as ever, she dropped out after a few weeks for reasons that have never been convincingly explained. Instead, she began working alongside her friend, though in a lowly capacity, at the United Nations, where her compatriot U Thant was Secretary General. When people write about the young Sue, it is usually to recall the way she persuaded her fiancé Michael to agree that if duty called, in whatever unimaginable form, he would permit her to return to Burma to take up her father's legacy. That's the image that we carry of her, this person of almost uncanny prescience, who somehow already anticipated the tragic life of commitment and struggle that lay ahead of her, as if she was her own oracle. These letters that she wrote to Michael, pleading for his understanding and acceptance of her possible destiny, are indeed extraordinary but they tend to obscure other aspects of her character that, in my view, and especially given that, after all the suffering of the past two decades, some more positive outcome to her career now seems at least conceivable, are equally significant. When she married at the age of 25, two things were clear about this woman. One, that she vigorously upheld the morality her mother had taught her and was intensely proud of her father's achievement and would like in some way yet unclear to prove his worthy child. And two, that she was a seeker, a trier, with enough willpower, determination and self-confidence to wander off any beaten track, to drop things and turn around, to trample on Burmese taboos about marrying foreigners, for example. From her university years, she was very much her own person. And those, in my view, remain her most important attributes today. Freedom from Fear was the title of the book by and about her that was published during her first years in detention. And the phrase became her watchword, the key for bringing about the revolution that she advocated. Quote, fear of losing power corrupts those who wield it, and fear of the scourge of power corrupts those who are subject to it. Fear, bahaya in Burmese, quote, destroys all sense of right and wrong, she went on, which is why it is at the root of corruption. With so close a relation, with so close a relationship between fear and corruption, it is little wonder that in any society where fear is rife, corruption in all forms becomes deeply entrenched. It is clear from what she did and did not do in the twenties, from the choices she made, that she had in fact been practicing freeing herself from fear for many years before she went into politics. Fear of the university's rigid requirements, fear of her family and its expectations, fear of Burmese racial prejudices. 
In my view, these facts, this effort, this success in freeing herself from the uh, traditional constraints of her society shed light on the choices before her today and what she is likely to do with them. Sue may not be a strategist of genius. She never had any involvement with politics before 1988 and her fierce morality makes the usual shenanigans of politics particularly hard for her to accept. But she is not a victim, a hapless martyr, a puppet. She's not an innocent out of her depth. Her detention went on so long that an earlier biographer, Justin Wintle, decided rather cruelly, in my view, that what defined her were impotence and futility rather than anything more positive. Hence the title of his book, Perfect Hostage. The past year has proved that judgment not just cruel and premature, but downright wrong. And now she is at the most critical junction of her career. <coughs> Nobody knew what to expect when Sue emerged from more than seven years of continuous detention on the 14th, sorry, the 13th of November 2010, one year ago. There was just huge relief that the regime had kept its word, that she was finally free, and that she looked so well. The only thing that seemed fairly sure, I myself heard it from the lips of her party's foreign affairs spokesman, Nyor On Mint, in Thailand, after I had been turfed out of Burma days before her release, was that she was not going to go back on the road. That prediction proved true. During her first six months of freedom, she never left Rangoon, just shuttling between her home and the office of the NLD, a car ride of 10 or 15 minutes. When I managed to get back into the country in March of this year and visited her, she was busy meeting party leaders and members from all over the country. Instead of going to them, she got them to come to her. It was a prudent strategy but it was not exciting and galvanizing like her earlier tours. It looked like a sign of timidity or timorousness, not qualities that we have ever associated with her. But now it's clear that the decision to stay put in Rangoon was nothing to do with fear of what might befall her on the road, but was part of a deal struck with Burma's incoming president, Fane Sane. I agree not to campaign, she said in effect, and in return, you will make good things happen. It has taken a while, but since Parliament convened in August, things have been happening in Burma, politically speaking, as never before. Releases of political prisoners, not enough, but quite a lot. Relaxation of censorship. Invitations to the UN Human Rights Envoy to visit changes in the electoral law to allow the NLD to become a legal party again. Most surprisingly of all, there was a suspension of a highly unpopular Chinese-sponsored dam across the river Irrawaddy because, in Thane Sane's words, it is, quote, against the will of the people. The will of the people? One shook, one, one shook one's head in disbelief. When was the will of the people ever a factor in the Burmese junta's considerations? So, Fane Sane is on the side of the angels. That was a surprise. There is a Burmese phrase, 
Baum bichut, which means men out of trousers. Army men wear trousers. The rest of Burma's male and indeed female population makes do with the lunji, the Burmese sarong. So when an army man goes back into civvies, he is a baungbichut, a man out of trousers. Now we have an entire government made up of men out of trousers, like Fain Sein himself, a long-serving general, until he tied on his lunji again. While still a general, he was prime minister in 2007 during the Saffron Revolution and its brutal putting down. As a general, he was head of the National Convention, which drafted the country's new constitution, guaranteeing the military 25% of seats in parliament and a veto on any measures the fake civilian government might enact. There was no reason, therefore, to expect very much of Thane Sane, this 67-year-old former general with pebble glasses and a pacemaker, the faithful underling of the brutal former senior general Fan Shui, a man who had only come to power by dint of one of the most outrageously fixed elections in recent history. But then suddenly, in mid-August, a few days before the new parliament convened, he invited Sue to a one-on-one meeting with him in the new capital the first time she had ever been there. She took part, again at special invitation, in an economic seminar. She was photographed with the president under a portrait of her father, Burma's founding father Aung San, whom the regime has been trying to airbrush out of history for the past 20 years. She and the president and the president's wife even had dinner together. Why was Fain Sein being so bold? with his patron, Fan Shuet, still alive and presumably grinding his teeth in the background. One of the most interesting reasons is fear of China. For a long time, Burma observers commented on how fortunate Burma was in its geopolitical position, being rich in timber, oil, gas, jade and much else, and able to play off its two giant neighbours, India and China, against each other and thus snub the West and ignore its maledictions. Well, it seems that that geopolitical position is slightly more cosy than the Burmese elite likes. An old Burmese saying goes, when China spits, Burma swims. And there is still much truth in it. Have the West's sanctions had any effect? Clearly they have not brought the regime down, but they did have this effect of forcing Burma into a relationship with China so close that it is now felt to be suffocating, with large parts of Mandalay, for example, the second city, becoming Chinatown, with the now-suspended Mitsone Dam intended to send 90% of its energy to China, and with the China trade dominating the whole economy. Fein Sein seems to have decided that the best And perhaps the only way to get out of that tight Chinese embrace was to play the Sioux card. For reasons that he seems to understand far better than his predecessor, this would help to melt the ice with just about everybody. And, as Hillary Clinton's visit this week proves beyond a doubt, it's working. What happens next? Several dozen by-elections are due to fill the places in Parliament vacated by the MPs who have been elevated to the government. That's how it works, apparently. But we don't know when. Opaque as ever, the regime may call them next week or in three months' time.
Sue has already said that she will stand, in which case no one doubts that she will win, given her massive popularity. It will be the first time that she has actually stood for election. Back in 1990, she was the head of her party, but she did not actually propose herself as a candidate. What then? Some months back, it was strongly rumoured that she had been offered a job as a minister without the preliminaries of running for election. It seems that Sue turned the proposal down, having no desire, perhaps, to find herself a different type of hostage. But it may give an indication of the way Thane Sane's thoughts are tending. Given Sue's undoubted influence with the leaders of the West, a Burmese president who was self-confident and imaginative might well see the merit in having Sue as, say, his foreign minister. This is all highly speculative, of course, and there is no doubt that Thane Sane has conservative enemies within his regime who he must either appease or defy. But while the chances of us waking up to find Sue is the Burmese president seem pretty slight, a ministry, real political power, may not now be out of the question. And what then? In a seminal essay published during her first years of detention, Sue wrote, quote, the quintessential revolution is that of the spirit, born of an intellectual conviction of the need for change in those mental attitudes and values which shape the course of a nation's development. Without a revolution of the spirit, the forces which produced the iniquities of the old order would continue to be operative. Sue's son Alex quoted that revolution of the spirit line in his speech uh, when he received the Nobel Prize on her behalf 20 years ago. And Sue has been advocating this revolution consistently whenever she's had the chance to speak since. Nobody questions the sincerity of her commitment to this revolution of the spirit. But what becomes of this revolution of the spirit in the new context? Once, for the first time, she now seems to be on a basis of equality of some sort with the regime. But how can she encourage and reward Thane Sane and the other moderate reform-minded ministers without getting sucked into a political machine that is still at the mercy of the kleptocratic military men who have run and ruined Burma for the last 50 years? If she does indeed become an MP and then a minister in such a corrupted setup, how would that benefit her or anyone else? What then would become of her revolution of the spirit? These are the questions which she and her party colleagues in Rangoon will be wrestling with as the prospect of real political power draws near for the first time. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, um, Peter. That was tremendously interesting. Who is the peacock? The, does this work? Yeah, I think so. The, um, the peacock was the, uh, in the first place, it's a symbol of her party.
can see it on the oh yes. in the background yeah. of the uh, on the on the flag. Oh, this is the NLD flag, yeah. and it's it's not. I mean, it's a bit schematic, and the head is missing behind her head. But that's <laughs> the symbol of the party. Um, but it was also the uh, the symbol adopted by the the anti-British uh, rebels before the war, during when it was still a British colony. And the reason they adopted it was because before that, it was a symbol of the Burmese monarchy, which the British destroyed. Oh. So it's got a sort of multiple resonance for Burmese. Okay, great. So now we have a little bit of time for questions. Yes, I'll take this one in the front and then... Do say your name, by the way. Graeme Zietlin. Could you tell us more about the attitude and the possibility of the future for the Karen people? If she achieved power, what might she try to do and what might she achieve? Would she bring them, try to bring them back from exile? Yeah, a very, very important question. And I must admit I've I largely admitted to talk about the ethnic minorities during my talk. Um, the Karen, which... Uh, is the, um, the single largest minority in Burma um, and has been at war with the Burmese military ever since before independence was declared. But they've moderated their demands from full independence to autonomy. Soon after she was released from house arrest, uh, Sue started calling for a new Panglong conference. The Panglong conference, the original one, was the one of her father's greatest achievements in 1947 when he got all of the main ethnic minorities in the country to sign up to agree to participate on equal terms in a union of Burma in a confederation. Um, this was never properly implemented because of course Aung San was assassinated before independence. Um, but this is what and the, I should add the Karen didn't actually sign the Panglong agreement, the first one, because of their hostility to Aung San himself. But it's clear that if there was another conference, which would be one of her priorities if she came into power, then re-establishing some kind of decency in the relations between the Burman majority and the many ethnic minorities would be an overriding priority for her. I've lived in Burma for 12 years. I have never understood why they kept her under house arrest rather than have her killed. Uh, the Benazir Bhutto treatment or something like that. Why did they never kill her? Well, I mean, they did try twice. Uh, she was nearly killed in, 1980, in April 1989 um, when she was at Danubu, when a major... Uh, was so f infuriated by her refusal to obey his orders that he, he ordered his, his platoon to fire on her. And she only survived because the order was countermanded at the last minute by a senior, more senior officer. And again in 2003, in May 2003, Fan Shue, the senior general, actually ordered her assassination. And it's... Yeah, I mean, it very nearly happened. I mean, more than 70 of her supporters were killed in this attack on her on her, sort of her, um, her, her car and the, the cars accompanying her in remote countryside north-west of Mandalay. But I think I mean, the reason that they haven't... I mean, there were numerous ways they could have killed her at any time. She could have poisoned her or, I mean, an accident could have befallen her. 
and it's partly because they were terrified of the popular consequences in terms of a of a, a spontaneous uprising. But I suspect there was also, because the, um, as you know, um, you must know very well, Burma is incredibly religious. And I think that, that the, they didn't, they feared the karmic consequences of, of killing somebody who was regarded as a bodhisattva. Yes. Jennifer Holroyd, uh, it seems to me that Feng Shui is, is taking a huge risk in the approach that he's taking. I wondered what would be Sue's analysis of his motivations to, um, framed in terms of, of the fear that you mentioned. And you, know, you mentioned a fear of loss of power, or is it, is it just fear of China and the other superpowers? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a fair question. And as, as I said, in, everyone has been taken surprise taken by surprise by the speed at which things have happened. Um, although, I mean, previous times she's been released, both in 1995 and in 2002, there were tentative re efforts of reform, but in both cases they ended up looking like gestures. I think it's, uh, it's partly, as I said, it's partly the, the greater fear of being completely dominated and almost absorbed by China. There's also uh, an in, in uh, the economic crisis. I mean, despite its vast resources, Burma's economy is in, in very poor shape. And, and I think Thane Sein wants to correct that and to finally get the economy back into a position where you can bring the World Bank and other international organizations back into the country. Um, and clearly, he, he has got maybe not a majority, but a significant minority of, of people in the government who feel the same way. But it's, it's a gamble. It's a gamble for all of them. Yes. My Mary Bush is my name. I'm, as a journalist, I'm interested in your comment about the lifting of the censorship in August. I know Sorry, about the what? The lifting of the censorship. Oh, yes. Sorry, yeah. it's my yeah, Kiwi yeah. accent. Yeah. They, um, August is very early days, but it seems to me there's a big difference between lifting censorship and freedom of the press. And at the moment, most of the stories, some of the stories we're hearing that have been compiled, the reports that have been compiled inside Burma, are so horrific, I can't believe that those are going to be newspaper headlines any day soon. I mean, 1% of GDP spent on education. I mean, what population, how is anybody going to get those figures out to a general population? No, I mean, you're, you're right. Uh, the, 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 the relaxation of the censorship has been very superficial um, and, and very limited. I mean, the, 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 the censorship authority is still there and, and everything has to be submitted to the censor before it can be published and they still stop a lot of stuff going out. And certainly that we, there are, I mean, there is, there, there is no sort of truly independent newspaper or magazine um, and none has come into being as far as I know since August. On the other hand, the, um, as in so many other countries around the world, the uh, severity of Burmese censorship has been mitigated for many years by the fact that the um, international uh, satellite channels can be seen by many people. And, there is even quite, I mean, the, the, the internet access is appalling, but it's there. I mean, they're in Rangoon, if you happen to live in, well, it doesn't apply if you're in the countryside, but if you're in Rangoon or Mandalay, there are dozens and dozens of little internet cafes, and which people use quite freely. 
I was, I was in the far south of Burma in 2007 during the Saffron Revolution and uh, in a place called Kotong, which is very far south. It was the only bit of the country I could get into because Rangoon was, was blocked to arrivals. And there was a, an open-air cafe there with two televisions, one of them showing a Japanese samurai drama and the other one showing CNN. And so the people in the cafe were just sitting there, open mouths, looking at streams of monks marching through the centre of their cities. So, in a way, the, uh, the, 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 the very severe censorship which has been in place since the 1960s has already been undermined by the new, the new, uh, the new means. Hello. I'd like to uh, ask your opinion on something. Yeah. Uh, specifically about um, sanctions as a Western policy. Um, sanctions is something that Western governments have turned to a great deal recently. Um, Iran, for instance, we've seen some of the consequences of that over the last few days. Uh, now, the effect of sanctions in Burma is to drive it into a very close relationship with China. That essentially means that the Western um, influence in the region has only uh, decreased. So would you therefore say that sanctions are a counterproductive policy? Well, I, I, actually, I don't think that's the case, really. I mean, I, I've got an open mind about sanctions, and in some places and sometimes I think they've been very, very, um, uh, been very unfortunate in their effects. But in Burma, I, I mentioned the effect during my talk of the, of the way they've driven Burma into the arms of the Chinese. But there's, no, there's one particular um, historical moment when they, when they had an effect. In 2003, the incident that I mentioned just now in which they tried to get her killed when Than Shui ordered her assassination. Um, and the, the actual reality of what happened at this Depayin, at this event, came to light and led quite, quite quickly to a very rapid, to a very t severe tightening of sanctions by the, by the US and also by the EU. Um, and the consequences of that was obviously that the regime did not fall, it did not even sort of totter, but Fan Shuet lost face severely, which is an important matter, and he was forced to appoint his main rival, whose star had been in decline, Kin Yunt he's called, as his prime minister. And it was Kin Yunt who, in, a, in an important speech, announced the seven-step roadmap to democracy. This is in 2004. And soon after that, in total secrecy, he started negotiations, or his, one of his cronies started negotiations, negotiations with Suu Kyi, in, intended to bring the NLD back into the political process. These actually failed because Fan Shui took fright eventually and had had them locked up for years and years, and the whole thing was killed. But what's interesting is that it was almost certainly the sanctions which forced Fan Shui to go down that road which he certainly did not want to go down. So I think they have, although obviously uh, China and Southeast Asia uh, which are, are much more important as trading partners, and although the Western sanctions are by no means complete, um, for example, Total, um, the French oil company, uh, is, is very long had a very high profile in Burma, and American oil companies as well. But nonetheless, they have, in terms of, of, of I think, of, of both of humiliation 
of, of through the uh, sort of on an international forum, which does matter in Asia, but also the targeted sanctions, make it, which make it much more difficult for senior members of the regime to travel or to keep their money abroad and so on. I, th I, think, I think they have actually been a very significant factor in the reforms we're now seeing. Yes. I, I realise I haven't been looking over there. David Watts, just a quick one about American policy. One can see the attraction of... Uh, spoiling the Chinese game in Burma, but to what extent do you think the Americans are engaging with Burma because of their concern about the alleged nuclear relationship with North Korea? Um, well, that's been mentioned by Hillary Clinton already. Um, it was one of, the, one of the first things she said, in, and, and she, it was announced before she went to the country that that was one of their concerns. Um, beyond that, I can't really say. I, I mean, I clearly... Um, sort of a new axis of evil is, is, uh, is something which America would like to do whatever they can to, to, to avoid and exactly how tight uh, Nyaipi Dior and Pyongyang have become I don't know yet I don't know but certainly there have been talk of, of uh, nuclear shipments coming into to Burma so I mean the, the American attempted engagement has been going on for the last two or three years with negligible results. It's only in the last three months that you've seen something happen. So I think it's very early days. Yeah, I, I thought I would, was missing someone in that direction. Hi, I'm Sam Blackman. Do you think that um, Aung San Suu Kyi could be sort of accused of putting like idealism, long-term idealism, a, ahead of sort of pragmatism and sort of saving lives? I mean, I. I've been, I've been to Burma and um, I went in 2007, a month before the revolution, and um, I read articles that said you shouldn't go there and she'd said you shouldn't go there. When you actually get there, the people, um, I, I, it, was the, it was the dry season and the people there needed, my, needed our business. I mean, they didn't have any work for the next week or they hadn't had any work for two weeks before. And without tourists, they can't feed their families. And do you think that... I mean, yeah, what do you think, what do you make of that policy? Well, um, certainly, I mean, the policy has been reversed, as you probably know. It was one of, even before she came out of house arrest, her, her long-standing colleague, Wu Win Tin, announced that, uh, that, that, so, you know, that individual tourists, people who are not going in package tours, uh, w should come if they wanted to come. Um, I mean, her, her policy, uh, her anti-tourism stand came up in 1995 when the regime announced visit Myanmar year and uh, she stood up soon afterwards and said uh, let's make this instead don't visit Myanmar year and I think it was sort of slightly policy on the hoof um, and, and a lot of people as you say a lot of people inside Burma and not only tour guides um, are very hostile to the, the, the policy um, Anyway, it has been reversed by her as well. Um, and I think, I think it's true that a country which has suffered from so many decades of almost complete isolation needs uh, a flow of inquiring, uh, sympathetic, well-informed, uh, compassionate visitors from abroad uh, very much. Um, whether that's an adequate description of the average tourist, I'm not sure. <laughs> Hello, my, my name is Michael McGowan. Um, the first question I was going to ask you, I hope you don't mind, it was um, really 
have you also fallen in love with Sue? <laughs> because it seems to have had a bit of effect on a lot of people, and I mention it in the context of, uh, you referred to her once as the, possibly the Nelson Mandela of Burma, and um, I, I, I'm, it's my quest, two questions really indicate my ignorance of, of, of Burma, but thinking in terms of Nan Mandela when he eventually stood as, as president, there was a very substantial movement called the ANC, which wasn't a political party, it was a very broad movement with many parties and, and, and many groups. And, and I just wondered the, 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 the excitement and expectation of her release and potential entering the political field uh, might be more than optimistic. I think you've indicated this. And the second thing I was going to ask you, again, indicates my ignorance. To, to what extent has she any political or ideological networks internationally? Now, I did have the chance of meeting her late husband, Michael, when I was in the States, and he was actually at the second Democratic Convention when Clinton was standing for the second time. And although I found him very modest and quietly spoken, they seemed very enthusiastic about, uh, about the Clinton campaign. And, and I know next to nothing about her international links. Uh, anything compared with the international solidarity there was for the ANC besides being anti-apartheid. Well, um, I'll, I'll try and answer some of that. Um, I mean, I think, I think you, the, 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 the main, well, of course, there are many points of difference between her and Nelson Mandela, but certainly the ANC was a much more formidable force in South Africa than the NLD is in Burma. And, um, I mean, the NLD was, was sort of, it was brought together very rapidly in 1988 by people from all sorts of different backgrounds, including sort of former communist journalists and academics, um, senior army officers who'd fallen out of favor with the regime, um, and students and university teachers. In other words, it hadn't, didn't have any ideological glue. Uh, it was certainly not a communist organization, although there were communists in it, former communists in it. Um, um, so it, it, it was, um, I mean, it, it wasn't, it, it didn't cohere particularly well, which has been a fact of Burmese democracy even before the, the coup d'etat. Aung San's party itself was like a coalition of, uh, of people with their own retinues, their own followers coming from different strands of society, and which I suppose you could identify as a you know, fact of the political immaturity of Burma, perhaps, with so negligible experience of, of, of uh, democracy in all these years. And then, I mean, it had this weakness um, at the outset, and then it was basically after they won this election with this incredible landslide in 1990, the, the, the regime set about quite deliberately to smash it, and all of Sue's closest colleagues were put in jail. Um, many of the people who won seats as MPs were either put in jail or else they fled into exile or some of them were killed. Uh, anyway, they were basically silenced and pushed out of political life, which left a sort of rump of um, people who were quite often mediocre um, sort of pen pushers to keep the thing ticking over. 
And I think that's, I, I'm not sure that she's addressed that. It's very hard to know, but I mean, my experience of the NLT is that you've got her and you've got Uwin Tin, who's this amazing journalist who was in self, who was a former communist, in fact, who was in prison and uh, in solitary confinement for almost the entire time, for 19 years. And Utin U, who is a former general um, and who uh, is her most loyal, and just this handful of really quite old men who are very, very loyal. And then you've got a kind of a missing generation of people who have either been killed or imprisoned or gone out of politics altogether. And the question is whether the NLD has got enough, as an organisation, has got enough vigour to suck in the most talented young people and to become a vital force uh, in the country. And to be honest, that's an open question. I don't really know the answer. My, the evidence of my eyes is, is not necessarily happening. Because certainly until, well, when I was there in March, and it seemed an incredibly isolated organisation. It was the only place where you could speak her name, the only place you could see her image. Uh, it seemed to be sort of cut off from the rest of society, unable to function. Um, so th certainly creating any kind of a mass party, let alone one with any uh, ideological cohesion, is a major challenge. And I think, didn't you also ask about international networks? Yes, I wanted to use another source of internationalism, of course, in the way. I wanted to use any network that, that, that she and her group might be linked with that, that, that could be of the sense whether there have been sanctions European or whether there are sanctions, is there not a resource? Undoubtedly there are. For example, I've got a, a friend, I've been working and living in Italy for the last seven or eight years, and I've got a friend there who's uh, near the top of one of the, uh, the, the major trade union federations, Chisel, uh, and is also involved in the ILO. And through the ILO, they've got strong connections with Sue and with her colleagues. Um, and in fact, one of the reforms that Fein Sein pushed through, which I didn't mention, was to legalise trade unions in Burma. So, and that, that was almost certainly thanks to the influence of the ILO on her thinking. So beyond, beneath that kind of, the, the level of, you know, hobnobbing with Obama and Clinton and so on, you have got network, networks of support, yes. So there was somebody over there. My name is Alexis. I wanted to ask about the um, overseas Chinese population in, in Burma. Is there a popular resentment that you know of against the presence of a large overseas Chinese population, or are they more widely accepted as a part of society in the same way as they would in, in neighboring Thailand or, or Singapore? Well, I mean, there, ha there has been in, in the past. You've, you've seen, um, in times of um, uh, economic problems, you find that there are outbreaks of attacks on on overseas Chinese and on other minorities, on Indians, for example, in, in the Burmese cities. The suspicion is often that it's actually fomented by, by uh, agents provocateurs in the pay of the regime in order to distract the people from re protesting against the, the regime itself. Um, but, I mean, Rangoon was a, a majority Indian city when Burma got independence. It had become an Indian city under the Raj. Uh, and there was a huge amount of anti-Indian uh, feeling which uh, Nguyen himself embodied and in fact he, he forced millions of, in, of Indians 
who born and made the, the children of people born in Burma to return, as he put it, to India. So, I mean, there is, in a country with so many minorities, there are all sorts of possible kind of fissures and... and, and but um, I, haven't, I haven't heard of it being a problem in the, in the last year or two. I'll ask my question. Yeah. It was actually sort of, in a way, you partly answered it by talking about the NLD, but I was rather surprised by your suggestion that she might become a minister, because that would seem to me an incredible compromise and co-option after she's gone through all this. I mean, within that government, however um, nice Taksin seems to be, you would be terribly limited and powerless being a minister. Well, I mean, I, it's, it's obviously a, a very difficult... Um, decision for her to take. I mean, when it when it was uh, it was revealed that she's thinking of standing, uh, running for election as an MP, U Win Tin, the the, the journalist uh, who was imprisoned for many years, uh, made clear that he was he thought it was too early, that it was it was premature, and basically because the constitution is so rigged in favour of the military, I think, and, and I sort of agree with her that really. Um, I mean, she believes that Thane Sane, as she put it, is a listener, and she clearly uh, has some respect for him, and he won't be along for, around forever. And I think she is, she is decided to grab what opportunities are available while they are available. And the fact is that even if she... I mean, the, the point is that for the whole of her career, she's basically been, as I put it in my book, kind of on a ledge outside the uh, political system of Burma, unable to do anything, just sort of known to the whole world, but completely impotent. And to have the possibility of remaining on good terms with the, the leaders of the West, while at the same time being able to influence, to some degree, the, 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 the actual policies put into effect by the regime, I can understand why at the sta this stage in her career, when she's, you know, hasn't necessarily got all that many years of active political life before her, it's too good an opportunity to be turned down. Well, but I think there's a huge dis difference between running for election and being a minister in what is not your government. And, I mean, if you think about the first Polish elections, I think they were June 89, um, where the election was rigged and solidarity could only win a small proportion of the total the fact that they had elections and solidarity was elected created a huge momentum which meant in the end they were supposed to, they had to go further and so i think it makes perfect sense for her to stand in elections but that's completely different from becoming a minister in a military government no i mean i i i i, I take that point uh, and i'm sure this is something which is debated being debated fiercely yeah. within the party now so, would anybody else like to ask a question? Yes, Mr. <laughs> Over here. Yeah, um, my name is Shira Huan. I'm from Thailand. I would love to ask you about, like, um, sorry, where are you from? Thailand. From Thailand. Yeah, right. and um, I would love to ask you about, like, power relation between Aung San Suu Kyi and um, the military Burmese government. Like, you mentioned that um, Dan Shui like, invite her to have dinner or something. But I would love to know, like political power relationship between her and um, the Burmese government.
government. And another question is, um, sorry, I, I didn't quite get that one. Could you say it, say it a bit slower? The power relation between um, Burmese government and the Aung San Suu Kyi. Yeah. Like what? What is the hints? Like I think like I am not that get. I would love to know on that. That's one question. Okay. And the second is, um, if her and um, her party represent the opposition side because they want to bring brought back the Banglong Convention, right, with the ethnic minority, which is now really huge conflict with um, KNU and Karen and the um, Burmese government. Do you think like the Burmese government gonna attack on that issue? Because even right now they won't, you know. Compromise between the ethnic minority and even like um, the, the 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 power of the military government. That's it. Um, well, regarding her, the relations between her and and the government. I mean, it, it seems like it's, it's a very sporadic and occasional affair. I mean, she's, there's an, a, a liaison minister who is has had the job of meeting her, and they meet from time to time. Uh, it's the same chap who had the job of liaising with her way back in 2002, I think. No, no, sorry, no, 2000 and, I don't know, sometime in the last few years. And, and they always seem like completely meaningless, symbolic meetings, simply done to show something is being done, but actually nothing happened. It was just kind of ceremonial. Um, this time it seems different because, as I've mentioned, a number of things have been done which are things that she wanted done, like, for example, the change of the registration law about political parties. Previously, parties which had uh, political prisoners in them had to get rid of the political prisoners before they could register, and that law was altered. Trade unions were legalised, etc. I mean, they have actually taken a number of her concrete demands and implemented them as a sign of good faith, which shows a much more political maturity and ambition than you've seen in the previous relations. Regarding the, uh, the conflicts with the ethnic minorities, she, as I said, she proposed very soon after she was released that they have a, a new Panglong conference to, to thrash out a future constitution for Burma, including the minorities. And it has to be said that Nothing has happened about that, and she hasn't even repeated it, except very vaguely. And I think, given the huge amount of um, prestige and uh, um, everything else invested in these long-running wars on the borders, that's going to be a really tough one for her to make any progress on. Really difficult. Lady... Thank you. My name's Janet Apliar-Hobbs. I was visiting Burma, visiting a friend who lives there in October this year, mm. and we spoke to as many people quietly as we could, and they all seemed very enthusiastic about um, things improving in their really? country, wow. and particularly said, tell all your friends to come and visit us. Mm. We want tourists. We want people to come, not just to spend their money, but to... Um, to keep a watching brief, really, on what's going on. Um, and I bought this magazine, which you probably know about, oh, right. um, which is a long interview and then articles about Aung San Suu Kyi. But I'm puzzled by the back cover. This is a light-hearted question. It says, this daggone stuff is wonderful. They've won many awards. 
but it doesn't actually say what it is. <laughs> Do you know? I've got no idea. Maybe Mr. Philip knows. I, I don't know. I mean, Dagon is a... Yeah. Yeah. Dagon right. is a part of a part of Rangoon and it's, I believe it's one of the places where she may run for as a candidate but um, beyond that I don't know sorry <laughs> and then the gentleman just in front uh, Michael Gallagher um, my question is what do you think China's reaction will be concerning Hillary Clinton uh, visiting the country and uh, the, the water dam that you talked about and is there a possibility of a military intervention by, sorry by China well, it was interesting that the um, hours before M Mrs. Clinton met uh, Thane Sane, the, uh, the head of the Burmese military met his Chinese counterpart. So clearly the, uh, the, the Burmese are quite, are quite keen to, to, to keep uh, the thing in balance. They don't want to, to exasperate the China. They can't afford to. Um, I mean... Their, their, their strategic position relating to China is, is far too weak for them to, to antagonise China imprudently, and I'm sure they won't do that. Well, I think it, all I really want to say at this point, we're coming to the end of our time, is, well, first, of course, to thank Peter Popham very much, but I think the lesson I take away from this meeting is that we all ought to be watching Burma very closely. And it's pretty outrageous that we're not seeing more than we are, even though there have been interviews with Aung San Suu Kyi on the television and on the radio. There was the interview that the BBC did. And I loved, I don't know if all of you saw it, but um, the BBC, I think it was John Simpson, said, are things changing? And she said, well, the fact that you're interviewing me... <laughs> It is a sign that things are changing. And the other thing she said, which I also thought was very nice, um, he talked about her suffering, and she said, well, I find that rather embarrassing because so many terrible things have happened to other people, and I thought that was incredible too. So there's no doubt she's a real leader and somebody to be deeply admired and somebody to be supported, and I just hope we can try to generate continued interest in this. What I should say before we end is that Peter's books are on sale outside and he will sign them. So if you would like to buy one and have a signed copy. So thank you very, very much, Peter.